Hey there, welcome to Why We Roll, a tabletop role-playing game design podcast. We're your hosts, Chris Pickett, creator of the historical fantasy game Dance Macabre, and Wythe Marshall, creator of the political sci-fi game Stillfleet. Throughout the show, Chris and Wythe hope to amplify new creative voices. We'll chat with different TTRPG designers focusing on the world of indie games. We take a curious approach to game design, working through a range of mechanical and narrative questions that are pertinent to many designers, players, and GMs. We hope to showcase fresh and even challenging ideas about what makes imagination-based games just so powerful. Okay, let's find out why we roll. Hey, welcome to Why We Roll. Hello, everybody. All right. <laughs> we have a special guest. Uh, so we're back to tape in more regularly, Chris. And yes. we have some great guests lined up. And who knows exactly when this will debut as a podcast. So if you're watching on the stream, you're getting, you know, the the good stuff early. Yeah, it's really um, exclusive. It is exclusive for X amount of time it takes us to produce <laughs> all of the media artifacts. Uh, but we're super excited. Uh, we're really excited to talk to, to Leo Andrade today, um, who's, uh, you know, a collaborator and someone I just really admire and I think has a lot to offer when it comes to game design in general. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of topics we can bring up, but um, Leo has a new game with with some of his collaborators that just came out. Um, so we're taping October 24th, right in the heart of spooky season. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And right in the middle of the first season of Why We Roll. Um, Chris, do you have any other introductory comments, thoughts? Oh, no, not much from me. Uh, should we introduce ourselves again? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, go yeah, for it. Sure. Well, actually, Leo, why don't you start us off? Why don't you yeah, introduce yourself? What, how would you describe yourself to everybody? Oh, hello, everyone. I'm Leo. I'm from Brazil. I'm a game writer slash narrative designer slash translator. Uh, I've been working as a tabletop RPG creator for about three years now uh, across different uh systems sometimes making my own original stuff uh and the latest thing i have i have made that is available and is currently at a discount for spooky season reasons is a game called death sentence for which i was the developmental editor uh translator and sort of producer we're probably going to get into it a little bit later and it's it's a game where you get to control more than one character because life is cheap, dying is part of the fun, and you're encouraged to think more with your storytelling brain than with your, oh no, my precious baby brain, <laughs> like you, like we do in other tabletop RPG games where we get super attached to the characters. Mm -hmm. In this one, you're sort of, you know, baby meat grinder yeet, more like. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Um, <laughs> also, yeah. also as someone who really enjoys a lot of, uh, you know, meat grinders, love high lethality kind of games for tabletop. Um, yeah, I think that's fantastic. We should, we should always go narrative first. And if your character is the victim of the narrative, then all the better. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so maybe, uh, I think, I, th I know you've done other games and we should talk about them as well, but since Death Sentence is kind of the newest, uh, Leo, do you want to give us a little bit more insight into, um, you know, what is the game? Uh, I know you worked on it with other people, uh, and I'm excited to play, I, I am going to play it with you soon. I have not played it. Um, Ooh. so I'm very excited. I've read it. It's, it's not long. Uh, it's really, uh, a good deal on itch. So I put the link in the chat and I definitely recommend people go check that out. 
Um, but yeah, Leo, why don't you give us a little, little more of a pitch? And I'm, I'm, you know, there's some specific mechanics I might ask you about, but I think for now, you know, it, maybe you can tell us like the origins, like why a slasher RPG. All right. Uh, that sentence began as a thing one of my friends created to play with our group. Um, and he had this thought about eventually pursuing making it a, a proper product to put it up online and stuff. But this isn't the guy who, you know, does games professionally. So there was a little bit of insecurity and like the, you know, when you're trying to put out your very first thing and you get lost in the weeds because you're tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. You don't want to embarrass yourself with your first thing. Uh, so it kind of got, got lost in the weeds a little bit with that. But I played it with him. I ended up running it with other people and I was like, dude, this is great. You, you managed to catch something really special. Uh, if you, if you want, I can swoop in and help you as a developmental editor, because I've been doing tabletop RPG work for a while. We can put it together. I can, I can show you some new tricks. And then when I need some extra writing, I can do a bit. I can ask you to fill in a bit more. I'll translate what you have in Portuguese. We get our other friend who's a writer to, to jump in. And we can make a really cool thing. He, he even had done a lot of graphic design stuff by himself. And we took the, the bones of what he was going for and we adapted it into what it eventually became. Uh, and the core of the, the, the core of the death sentence experience is that, you're, that it's, uh, it's supposed to emulate the, the structure and feel of a slasher movie. It's not a slasher if people don't die to begin with so and usually like with rare exceptions and stuff like uh mike Flanagan's hush for instance you have an ensemble character because people are supposed to to, to die a lot like in um x for instance mm -hmm. uh, ty west's x um and because there is this high lethality and it's a thing that's meant to be played exclusively as one shots following a set react structure it's important to make sure people have more than one character because otherwise your character dies in or out. What do you do then? Do you go home? Do you just watch? Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. There are other games that manage to, to achieve a lot of the horror tension without necessarily the lethality, but it's with the threat always looming over you. Stuff like Dread with the, with the Jenga Tower, which I think is fucking brilliant. Mm -hmm. Um... But that sentence isn't about that so much. It's about uh, emulating the experience of the slasher movie while also letting players uh, take control of the narrative with the toolkit that they get. So the same way that you could say Merkborg is light on rules, heavy everything else, this is light on rules, heavy on story. Uh, we, we abstracted as much as we could to make it not mathy because i think doing a bunch of shit with numbers is anathema to the horror tabletop experience mm -hmm. yeah, the most math you're, yeah the most math you're going to do in that sentence is you see how many dice you get to roll and you count how many of the die rolls resulted in a success you don't have to you know uh add up the numbers you're just one success two success three okay what does that mean it means this done moving very cool. Um, which which is really really cool. It, it even the duration of a session can be closer to the duration of a movie than to the sort of stereotypical marathon tabletop RPG session that a lot of folks have. I think most people in the hobby at some point 
like maybe you're all young and you have free time and wow it's eight hours of dnd in the weekend well as as adult obligations encroach free time tends to shrink and ain't nobody got time for that <laughs> it's great when it happens i've had 12 hour long insane sessions that was great it's really hard to get the gang together for something like that these days yeah it is yeah well um you know i i think uh you know there, there's a lot of games that that focus on shorter play um with the option to go longer I always feel like I, I like, you know, with my friends, like the idea of like a campaign, even if it's broken up, you know, into lots of two hour sessions, because, yeah, we're all busy. Um, but I like the idea. One thing that appeals to me at Death Sentence and some things like this. And I think there's some something in the air because I think, you know, Don's Macabre even has like the dice pool, right? And mm -hmm. the horror um, and then Eat the Reich, which the preview just drops a few back to Rowan Rick and Deckard's new game about uh, Parisian vampires uh, killing Hitler. Um, you know, that these are things where that's meant to be like cinematic and kind of one arc that has a very natural you know there's some sort of end built in from the beginning which yeah. is really nice when you think about um narrative structure and some of the things i know chris we've talked about with with our game so it's interesting to think about with that sentence the narrative structure of the slasher movie we've all watched a million of them uh but you know you've also mechanicalized it so it's not just like okay it's a short game and at the end a bunch of people will have died maybe someone lives maybe not like let's let's see and i'm curious you know is the idea that the threat always wins or there's some actual tension like we could beat the threat the threat is abstracted the threat could be any horror thing right is that that's correct yeah uh you could make the threat be one nigh unkillable thing like, like Jason, the, or... I, I guess on the two different ends of the spectrum you have like fuck it zombie apocalypse you guys are rushing to get into a bunker <laughs> and on the other end it's like welcome to cocaine bear's cave yeah <laughs> <laughs> right 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 i think but uh, so you you have that and then you also have some other mechanics which are i, I think unique to death sentence which are really appealing so maybe yeah. you could you know at some point mention that but just in general you know like the horror mechanicalization you've done is, is kind of interesting here the, the act structure is is important because it regulates the use of some resources so it's a it's a big deal it helps one it helps keep things flowing at a certain pace like in the beginning if you think about the movie experience there is that part where okay we're establishing character relationships we're figuring out who's who who's connected in which way and we're slowly hinting that something's not right yeah that's the first 20 minutes then of there is like film yeah. yeah, and then the switch, like the moment you get some monster on screen or some violence happening mm. is when you're getting into the the meaty part of the movie where people are going to, in a, in a movie where it's about life and death and not, you know, uh, the girl who drowned in the in the building wants you as her new mom. That, that's not what you're doing in, in this sentence. Uh, it's... Um, it's about a struggle for survival, sometimes with a supernatural thing. You can certainly do that. Uh, and so when you when you switch from one act to the other in this three-act structure, which has a, a very clear setup, struggle, conclusion, you, you reset how many times players can use some of their character traits more powerfully they can keep using them all the time but they have one single really powerful use that adds more to the dice pool for uh, for every act and that that keeps people on their toes and it makes sure that you keep things narratively momentous mm -hmm. so in that sentence you don't have something like classes and powers and so on 
It's just people, the, the you have action attributes, you have traits that are little sentences that describe them, and you have relationships, and that's it. Very cool. To, to start playing the game, you only need to distribute six points between three action attributes and, <clears throat> and define three traits, and that's it. You don't need anything else for one character. You're going to have two or three, but like you can come up with a character... Dare I say, even quicker than you would fill up a Blades in the Dark sheet, which is also super duper fast. Oh, yeah. That is yeah, no, Death Sentence is much quicker, much quicker mm -hmm. than Blades, I think, for characters. Uh, and, and then the relationships are all established during play, because in a movie, the characters, most of them, have pre-existing relationships. They were, they were already husband and wife, or rivals, or best friends before the camera started rolling. But it only becomes real to us once it is expressed in the movie in some way. Mm -hmm. That sentence operates in the same way in which you have to roleplay something that makes the relationship clear. And from that moment on, those relationships can affect the, your action roles mechanically. That's very cool. You don't even need to be in the presence of the character you're establishing a relationship with. Like, suppose you are sharing a room with a friend and you establish a relationship with another character who's not there by basically spilling the beans and going like, yeah, man, I'm super nervous about asking her out. Holy shit. That counts. Right. Yeah. Um, you can also make it more momentous and, and make, like, and define a relationship in play. So the first time I played, uh, I had two characters that were polar opposites. One of them was sort of a, a himbo bodybuilder that I based on a, on a Brazilian social media personality who had sort of a crazy story circling around me, the, the Twitters. And then the other one was just a terrible, terrible rich boy. Like, he had his reasons to be terrible. His dad fucking sucked. But during play, the rich boy was the one making the selfish calls and being a dick. And so one of my, my girlfriend's characters, she decided didn't like him. And so... Uh, Marjorie made sure that this one character would freaking die. She used him as a distraction to call all the monsters toward him so she could vote the other way. And some people are like, oh my god, I wouldn't be able to play a game like that. But in my groups, we pretty much welcome PvP. Um, and it was really, really fun. Like We had mechanicalized the fact that she really didn't like him. She would get an advantage to do... She would get something out of getting him hurt, and she did it in a way that improved the odds of survival of the rest of the game. Right. Well, there's something that was awesome, and there were no hard feelings. Yeah, I mean, there's something nice too about having multiple characters, right? It's it's like a funnel kind of thing, right? Where you're not you're not getting attached to a single character. So again, if it serves the narrative for that character to be sacrificed, even though it is your character, you don't have the same kind of like you said earlier emotional connection where you're going to be upset that you are being sacrificed by another character um there's something really refreshing about that actually um i'm really curious too um okay so one thing i want to ask you about is um the kind of resource management that goes into the act structure that you mentioned earlier if you could expand on that a bit um so maybe yeah i'll ask you about that first we'll get to the other question later but yeah so what is what does that look like because i think that's really interesting in terms of setting tension for a horror setting as well where it's like i know that i can use this at this time but if i if i wait and draw it out is it going to be better if i use it later how uh how does that break down mechanically all right uh 
on the on the side of the person who's running the thing, what that we call a narrator in the book. Uh, ideally, for every act, you're going to make sure that you have one or two narrative beats that you're trying to usher the characters to. Because it's a thing that has a shared narrative, that has a narrative structure as a, as a shared storytelling device that everyone has bought into, uh, railroading is less of a problem. You can present the space as a sandbox, but then it's your job as the narrator to make sure that the players can get to the narrative beats. If you're sometimes shifting a thing from one position to the other, you might have to do that. Uh, sometimes, like, I'm a fan of improvising if you realize that something you planned isn't going well. Um, in the book, the, the the original creator, Guilherme, he, he wrote a thing about, like, they figured out the mystery too quick. There is very likely a way in which you can change the answer without that feeling like a rug pull, necessarily. Uh, the example is that, you know, they find tufts of hair hanging from branches and you mentioned offhandedly that it's a full moon night and they're like, oh, it's a werewolf. Or not. Just let them find the mangled carcass of the bear that the, mo the actual monster effortlessly mold and done, you know. Does the trick. Keep the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So first actor setting things up as the narrator, you're making sure the players, you know, get to the hints of something being wrong, and then in the middle, they're going to be questing for their way out, for a way to defeat the monster, or the, no or the knowledge they need to go away, or the car keys, for instance. Um, so you're administering mainly the beats and using the monster to keep the pressure on, and occasionally pulling the, the threat back. Because you need to give the you need to give the players some breathing room. You need to you need some moments of relatively low tension to make sure that character work can happen and planning and strategizing can happen. Mm -hmm. The same way that if you watch a movie and every five minutes on the dot, jump scare gore, jump scare gore. That movie is not too good. You know you you need those moments of that you're holding your breath expectantly and the and the character is trying to think or having a breakdown. Um, and so you use the threat in a way that enforces this. Like, you're going to be using your threat as a bit of a hit-and-run thing. The players will not necessarily feel like that. They might feel like the pressure is on all the time, but there will be organic spaces where they can catch their breath. And then you can get fucking relentless with it a little bit later on, once the MacGuffin is acquired, once the secret is unveiled. That, that is when players have probably lost a character or two, and now they're attached. <laughs> uh, in my case, my, my, my good boy Himbo Bodybuilder got strangled by a cop in a car from behind while desperately trying to run over an owl monster with said car, and someone else was trying to get the pistol. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we had a very fun scenario in which there was, indeed, a final girl. And happened completely organically. Classic. Um, okay, on the player side, the, the main thing about the three-act structure is that there are these things called drama points. You can acquire drama by doing two things. One, you establish a relationship with another character. If you do that in a way that, and you roleplay it, you get a drama point. And drama points that a player has can be used for the benefit of 
any of their characters. They are not locked to the character that acquired them because we're focusing on the storytelling, not so much on power gaming one character to survival. Yeah. Um, the other way that you can get uh, drama points, and I think that might be wife's favorite rule, is you allow one of the character traits to wrote down to remove dice from your pool. You're like, okay, I ha I'm assembling my pool and, and I'm going to voluntarily take away dice from my pool because I wrote this thing here and I think I can interpret it in a way that's detrimental to my character. Mm -hmm. You get the point. Your character might die, but you get the point that you can use for maybe another character later or if your character survives. Fucking great. That's epic. That's epic. Awesome. Um... So, like, it can be role-playing the fact that your character isn't too smart. It can be, for instance, that you are in a... You are in a The Descent situation. And you are caught between a, a, a literal rock and, uh, you know, the gnashing fangs of the inbred humanoids. Your character is a claustrophobe, and he really, really, really doesn't want to get into that fucking caving squeeze. Mm -hmm. But he's going to. And you're subtracting dice because he's going to be terrified in there. You'll get drama for that. You can do that voluntarily. Uh, the GM can take away dice from you for other reasons, but when the GM takes away, uh, when the narrator takes away dice, you don't get anything. You have to voluntarily do something bad to your character to reflect how you characterized them to get the drama points. That's fantastic. Um, and you can. And you can positively use it, each of the traits you have in a more powerful way than usual once per act. Uh, and then if the act switches, that means you get another really powerful use of one of your traits. Mm -hmm. One example is your character is uh, your character is good with guns because his grandpa used to take him hunting. If you use it in Act 1 to get two dice on a check, you can't do it again for two dice until the, the switch. Right. So that's the sort of uh, resource economy that you're dealing with. But other than that, it's not a game that makes you um, manage a whole lot. You're more making your calls based on when it feels appropriate. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, and uh, the final way in which you can get drama is the same way that you would get, say, inspiration in uh, in D and D or or hero points in Pathfinder. If you do something really cool that enhances the story, the GM can just go, they can just go and give you a token because you know what? Well done! Clap, clap, clap! Right. Um, so. so can we ask? So I'm curious. Like, did you come to these mechanics? Because you said your friend wasn't as interested. Like, did they all? come baked in, I guess? Or did you help develop these through playtesting? Like, how do uh, we get to good new mechanics, you know? He he had all the initial mechanics, so like drama, drama, panic, relationships, they were all already there. I helped him tweak the math, I helped him write, the, because there were some, like, how many dice the pool can get? Do we do the thing they do in Spire, where if your pool gets to zero or negative dice, so there is added negative consequences and so on. So that sort of thing. Uh, I wrote all the extra spicy PvP re relationship options. So the only one that was negative that was originally there was the one that you just hate the dude. But enemy of my enemy, uh, lust, and there was another one. 
I, I wrote three or four ones that are the ones that you need to do a good session zero to make sure you can use because mm. they are about either sexy stuff or or pvp uh those were things that i wrote myself um a lot of the explanations like were really kind of dry because the friend isn't a writer he clearly has a good game design brain but he needed their writing to get punched up so i overhauled a lot of that in the process of translating i was editing at the same time sure uh there was some tweaks that i suggested to the way the each individual relationship affected the, the roles mechanically after the playtests that was also a thing and i wrote the the original pamphlet scenario that comes with it. so out of the box you have a you have a session that you can play that i wrote uh after talking to him about what does a gm need what do what needs to be included in a playable scenario mm-hmm. um so those were me but the the game itself was already done when he when he presented it to us it just needed refining and game design is a lot of refining i think oh yeah, yeah. I, i've already talked to wife about it sometimes i'm a little eh, about how in the in the indie scene people like to say that uh play testing is overrated it can be if you're using a very 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 uh established thing with very solid core mechanics like if you're doing for instance pathfinder you might not need to play test all your combat encounters for balance right i think in dnd sometimes you have to because the cr system the challenge rating system for dnd is a mess <laughs> and the rules don't come together as elegantly as they do in pathfinder um well, yeah, I mean, like, it depends what the purpose of playtesting is. But I think for yeah. new mechanics, I'm very much on the side of, like, well, you have to playtest it if it's truly, like, yeah, if, if you're innovating, and why wouldn't you be innovating? So it's just also, like, a mindset thing of, yeah. like, yeah. Um, but I, I get it. In video yeah. games, it's completely uncontroversial. Like, test, test, test. It's important right. because, okay, you might be able to put out a good thing, a cool thing, without playtesting, but it's not going to be the best it can be. Yeah. The right. best it can be requires you to test it. And play testing isn't hiring a person to professionally play test. It's you sitting down with a group of people and running it or having someone else run it while you're around and watching. Yeah. It, it doesn't need to be super formal, you know. Uh, well, you want like way- earnest feedback about what's fun. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, way back in the day, I did make a couple of things that I didn't play test when I was beginning because it was hard to, you know, make it happen. But these days, if I'm putting something out, like Beutekunst, playtested. I playtested with multiple dice systems before I chose one. Beutekunst, the 6 game, it was almost culture of core, you know, almost pulls up the fours. And I was like, I'm not getting the the granularity of results that I wanted from this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go the other way. I played both ways. I interviewed my players. I sent them a little thing to answer questions. And that made it the best that it could be. Yeah, I love the social scientific approach. Like, really try to get people's, you know, unfiltered, you know, thoughts. Yeah, that is that is hard with playtesting when you're with a group of friends as well. It is. Conventions can be great for that, which I know not every game designer is able to do all the time. But even in in anyone's area, if there's a regional one and you can, there's like a free playtest table. Like, that's a great way to just get some quick feedback from from randos. Yeah, yeah. And like, there are those friends who are just brutally honest, and you want those (laughs) people, man. Yeah, that too. There's Uh, a few. Yeah. And you can, like, even story, talking as a narrative designer and writer here, you can very much test story, you know. 
yeah. which again, uncontroversial in video games, but in the tabletop RPG, there's a little bit of discussion. But I'll give you an example. I wrote a, I wrote an adventure, a horror adventure for 5e. That was the first thing I put out. And there's this one NPC who, who is like a malevolent force, but not outright antagonistic and try to kill the players. What he wants is to get the players to give him their most cherished memories in exchange mm. for vital information. And that can be super cool because the way I set this up is that he can cast message to everyone in the house and he knows what's happening in the house. So when a player falls unconscious and everyone's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. He's like, I can't cast Revivify. I just want the memory of your first kiss. <laughs> cool. But I put a fucking spell in his spell list that let him try to, you know, charm people into giving him stuff. And that completely robs the trope of all the pap- all the pathos. It, it was not cool. And I committed that mistake in the playtesting. And then I removed that from the, from the spell list. And I added a bit of boxed text to tell GMs that, yo, um, make sure players are willingly trading the things this character wants. Because otherwise it's going to lose all the weight. Mm. I, I didn't think of that when I wrote it at first. I found out by making a mistake when running it. And it made a superior product as a result. Yeah. Yeah, um, I've often found so even just with, with stuff that does feel successful, if you run it again and try to remember, and like if you take notes or wrote it out in full and run it again, it's different. And sometimes it's not even like, oh, I failed. But yeah, exactly what you're saying. You discover opportunities to refine or make better or clarify. And sometimes just options. You discover like, oh, we could do this or that. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, it's just, it's so much better to play test. It's just mind boggling. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's if you're not just publishing for people to read only, but if you actually yeah. want people to play these things as documents where you're not there, you know, yeah, you, Chris, yeah. it looks like you're, yeah. you're about to say something. Well, I, I just am uh, fervently agreeing. I probably should have my mic on mute because I just wanted to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. it's just, why not play test? I think even if you're, if, even if you're doing something for an established IP, it's like, at least play a session, like get some experience yeah. with it. Do a little bit of editing, even if it's on the fly. Um, yeah. So, uh, why we roll, we stand play testing. I think we yeah, can say we that. Totally <laughs> like, go on record. There, there are other things too. For instance, suppose you're a writer who speaks English as a second language. Like, I learned it spontaneously from the PlayStation. Didn't study it a day of my life. Got the certification anyway. That's awesome. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, that is so awesome, There yeah. will be things you will miss. Yes. And now, here, here's a funny one. When I was running my first uh, D&D session, I named a character Bellend. Oh, yeah, that's unfortunate. Because I never heard the word, and it just sounded like a name that went to the surname, and one of my players knew, and he was trapping in the chuckles the entire time. That that took me a second, because that's a very yeah. Brit, like U- British. That's a very yeah. UK uh, term that yes. does not get used in the United States very often, but you do hear it on like BBC television, like stuff like that. So like, like, it's, that's good problem. That's over. something that can be fixed by someone just reading your thing, and uh-huh. if you can get someone to read your thing also right. great... Like, if you're writing something that can be played solo, the reading is also playtesting. Yes. Um, so so... I, I, that brought up, you know, a couple other topics, because I know, I know you'd mentioned um, Bo- Boida Kunst, uh, your game about art, which I want to talk about, too. You have a modern game, not a slasher. Um, but you just mentioned translation, and I know that's that's how we had met, actually, is you, you translated some work for Stillfleet. So, um, and I hope 
to hire you to do more in addition to writing because you're a great writer and I assume you're a good translator. It's one of those funny things where you never really know without learning the other language, in which case, like, I, you know, don't need a translator. But um, but yeah, do you I mean, um, I definitely want you to talk about, you know, your other work, but like just on the translation front, how what, what started first? Were you making games and then later translating or were you translating and that led you to making games? And like, how do you think of the translation? Because you mentioned a couple, a couple times, it seems like the translation has helped you refine what you're writing, actually, which is really interesting. and makes sense because you're forced to pay careful attention to the language. Mm. Yeah, uh, like if you're not a good writer, you're not going to be a, a good translator. Uh, doesn't happen. You might be doing, say, super dry technical uh, uh, house appliance manual, then maybe you don't need to be a good writer in the sense of writing compelling fiction, but you better be able to, to you know, write down complex things digestively. It's still a shade of being a good writer. And when you're doing RPGs, you're simultaneously doing technical documentation and instructions for the people and making something that is fun and flavorful. Mm -hmm. You can read RPG stuff as entertainment. And I think most people in the hobby have read more games than they played. Or you read the thing and then you're like months waiting for your opportunity to break out the box or get your people together. And like, guys, okay, listen, we didn't get everybody together to, to play our standard campaign. How about a one shot of this? Um, so I was reading things and I, ever since I, let, let's roll back a bit. Uh, translation came after I started designing games. I, I got into designing tabletop RPGs uh, because I got interested in narrative design for video games and I was already running RPGs a lot and playing. And I realized that there is a lot of um, functional carryover of skills from one to the other. You're making things with the purpose of them being interacted with and expecting that people will have creative ideas you are not foreseeing. And you're trying to factor in how player agency interacts with your uh, authorial intent. Uh, translation came a little bit later as something that I, I felt qualified to do from frequently reading things and spotting bits. There was like wonky translation. I'm going to look up the original. And there it was in the original English. The, the thing I realized was actually happening after I read the, the Portuguese translation. I was like, um, I didn't have much formal study in translation, but I, I started with games from other Brazilian tabletop RPG designers. Uh, eventually, I saw that you were looking for somebody to, to do Steel Fleet because you, you were very bothered by the idea of your game being monolingual, which makes a lot of sense when you read the source material. Uh -huh. You like to make things multicultural, pluralistic, and just out there. Um, well, yeah, and, and we, we, you know, I think from the beginning, because, um, I mean, yeah, we, we just had a player base um, online who was all over the world. So it just felt very strange in a way to only be able to offer it in one language um, and to not feel confident enough and, like, not know how other designers dealt with that or whatever. So I just, yeah, it was like a random tweet, but I think that's how we connected was just like, hey, does anyone, like, has anyone considered translating stuff? I think I asked about Spanish, actually, and you pitched me on, like, well, what about Brazilian Portuguese and um, yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And, and ideally, right in an ideal world where we are all doing this professionally and have all the resources, we translate everything to everything. But to, to some degree, it's also like a time and money thing of like, what's makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it's been interesting seeing, I guess, I guess I knew some Brazilian game designers before I met you, but it, it didn't occur to me just how many awesome game designers there are in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, and so I wasn't, it wasn't sort of on my mind until, you know, now it's like, Oh, I see, you know, there's so many people and it's very impressive. And it, I don't know, like I, I, again, without, without, re- I'm reading everything in English. So I guess I'm only reading whatever gets translated, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what I'm, you know, percentage wise, am I reading like f- able to read like 5% of the awesome stuff or like 1% or whatever, but it's interesting. Like, I imagine that's true of every other languages too. Right? Mm-hmm. A lot of us are also writing in English from mm-hmm. the get go. Like I have to go back and translate things that I wrote in English into Portuguese oh, because yeah. a lot of how I'm doing this is like, I, I need this to be in my portfolio because I am aiming for a thing. I have this, I, I really have this dream of eventually making video games because I grew up on them. They were some like, you know how some books, movies, games are fucking formative experiences for you and, and change you. I think yeah. one of the first pieces of media that got me to, you know, cry my eyeballs out was the Mass Effect series. And I was like, fuck, I want to make that. <laughs> Or like Soma. Uh, oh, yeah, Soma good. is a sci-fi horror game that fucking broke me. My friends were worried. <laughs> uh, because I, ha- I I went into this rabbit hole of philosophy of the mind and connectomics and thinking about what a person make. Mm. So from I had this long extended uh, existential crisis and I was constantly thinking about that sort of stuff and reading up. On philosophy of the mind so i went like uh thomas nagel what does it feel like to be a bat into the right. hardcore we simulated a brain uh, a worm brain into this little lego robot um you should not read the that's another that one reading. that yeah that's awesome uh, what, what novel no, i'm uh, i'm constantly looking for media that makes me oh, uneasy great uh yeah i'm reading a book right now called blind sight which wife i was actually going to suggest it to you later i don't know if you've read this or not it's a um no hard sci-fi um a lot of it has to do with philosophy of the mind what makes up consciousness um it's yeah it's it's up your alley uh for both of you it seems like um yeah it looks dope yeah yeah watts like watts is the author do do write down the name because it's it's going to fall off my brain as you guys um direct me to talk about something else and yeah. then I'll go down the we'll, we'll, circle, rabbit. we'll circle back to it yeah 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 I'm, like, I'm just gonna throw some stuff in the chat yeah mass effect was deep i haven't played soma but um as my, my brother points out yeah mass effect was is crazy i still look I, ba- I barely played it at all but to just even look at the design of everything and the depth of lore um as i, I don't usually play a lot of games but often like read lore about sci-fi games mm. and like basically they're what were they called like like the fan wikis yeah. and like help guides Dude, and it, it's I would so interesting love to get you yeah. on stream playing small indie sci-fi it's like straight up first thing play the red strings club and then i would just watch you over the decisions it would be so fucking funny or we should do uh, genre switching where people have to like learn history or like write a sistina <laughs> you know like do, or write a rap song and then like i have to play video games which i never do but I, I i like respect them deeply and they're they're such close cousins of tabletop but you know it, it is a very it is different at the end of the day you're writing right database you're writing with different sort of if this then that mentality mm-hmm. the rules are i don't know it's yeah it's the same it's not the same you know in the same way like board game design is different or yeah. just writing a novel right is different but i would actually i would uh, love to see uh wife i would love to see you play alien isolation sometime 
Yes. Let's do it. Yes, that's, that's a good one. Great. Yeah, that's a good one. Oh, before uh, one, one thing I know, Leo, you and I really both like is indie movies. So we should also, so I think which we're talking about translation. We should hear about your art game. Anything yes. else you want to plug? Um, and we should definitely talk about horror movies since it is October 24th. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've been tweeting one horror movie every day since the month started. Nice. Following a few criteria. Each movie doesn't have to fulfill all of the criteria, but I was trying to get as many of them as possible. The criterias are... I, I, I was trying to get all the letters of the alphabet. <laughs> Fuck the letter Q in particular, that was... <laughs> I didn't get one. Uh, Non-English, non-US, indie. I managed to make most of them fulfill all of the criteria. Um... For the folks who discovered me because of that sentence, it might be a little counterintuitive that slasher isn't super represented, but it is there. Uh, like I, I really, really, really like folk horror. Oh, me too. Especially me too. Like if you, if I had to to put together like what is my jam in the narrowest sense possible, Asian folk horror found footage. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, I just watched um, uh, I just watched The Wailing for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and beautiful, beautiful. Film I gotta watch it. That's good. Um, I also I, um, I was thinking Leo earlier when you were talking about the three three act structure of uh, of Death Sentence. Uh, another one that I just recently watched, which I guess you could argue is indie. It is English, but um, Possession by Andrei Zhirovsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I just saw that Possession. for the first time a few weeks ago. And the eighties one with the messy divorce. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's <laughs> on the list. It is. Uh, I think I saw it in a synopsis somewhere. It's very good. Um, but you know, even uh, I know that Death Sentence, uh, the three X structure, we're thinking more about like slasher movies and everything like that. But immediately, I thought of Possession, where you're talking about moments of a lack of tension versus moments of high tension, things like that. And there's so much dead space in Possession, where like. Things feel wrong, they feel off, but nothing's really happening. Um, so I, I actually, I really like that in Death Sentence, you could even apply it outside of a slasher genre if you wanted to. You could get even more abstract with it um, yeah. if you felt like Oh, that. yeah. I plan to, to try to play with some of those things in, a, in games that are more political or spy, because that's my, my like obsession. But, um, but yeah, I think they work really well for slasher, obviously, the, the, the drama. But I, I think they would work kind of in general. Um, I also have to say folk folk horror is also my jam uh, for our, our wedding thank you cards we made um, we tried to make it look like the, a poster from a movie in 1974 that's a British folk horror movie so we went for a very specific nice. like look because uh, you know it's at a farm and so it already all the and the for some reason the photographer the filter she used to us looked like old horror movie filter. Like, I don't know why all the stills are a little bit like they're about to get knifed in the back. Um, so we're, we're all the same wavelength there. Uh, but yeah, I posted, yeah, it's a great thread, Leo. I, I, I haven't seen most of these, so I, I feel like, Oh man, you're, gotta, you're way ahead on the, the horrorometer. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta check out this list. We, we have to, excited. we have to blame uh, my girlfriend for this. I growing up, I was, bad with horror because of uh, an unfortunate childhood encounter with the American remake of Jew on the Grudge. (laughs) When I have sleep paralysis hallucinations, I hallucinate with hair cascading as if somebody's bent over the bed watching me. Yeah, that's creepy. To this day, I am a person that wakes up screaming. I don't know how I became a horror person. But ever since I did, I started having less of the night terrors. So talk about fucking exposure therapy. Yeah, right, yeah. right. 
Wow. That, uh, if, if there ever was a got case. Me to watch... Yeah. <laughs> my girlfriend got me to watch The Witch. And from there, yeah. it was just downhill. We were getting everything. I used, to, I used to think I wouldn't vibe with Slasher until I saw a couple good ones. Mm-hmm. And started mm-hmm. noticing some trends. Like, things that really, really exist and are a little surprising. Horror slash thriller house invasion movies where the character has a disability i can think of three very good ones off the top of my head that i was not expecting uh like flanagan's hush is a classic there is i wasn't expecting to like it but the way they made the killer was very very real i haven't seen that one um it's cool i'm not going to to talk a whole lot about it but like you 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 get a little bit of time with the movie, you're going to be like, I know what online environments this person frequents. <laughs> hmm. um, and uh, C for me is another one uh, that's very well done. And like, I think it's Don't Breathe, where the... Don't Breathe is another one, but it flips things on, in its head a bit. Mm. Uh, so I got exposed to a lot of stuff and constantly watching it's the genre i watch the most it in it influences my my fantasy stuff a lot so like i like for some reason i ended up making a lot of horror things for sword and sorcery because you really really can and it's fun to do i think it lends itself yeah. to it really well yeah i agree a lot of the classic uh, sword and sorcery stuff kind of leans into necromancy and and you know zombie or you know the undead things like that anyway so there's there's already these kind of pulp horror elements that are in that genre to begin with yeah yeah exactly like close to that sentence there there's another thing i wrote that got released and it's a a third level adventure for 5e that's horror it's a dungeon crawly thing and it revolves around cats I wrote down a stat block for feral cat swarms and everything. <laughs> Great. We both have cats, so yeah. that's a very pro-cat show. Uh, they're very creepy animals, as much as I love them. They are them. creepy. You know, another thing, too, yeah. dungeon crawls, I think, are inherently horror, um, which I don't think I've ever thought about or said in my life before, but there you there you have it. I think a dungeon crawl is inherently a horror genre setting because there's traps. You're looking around corners. It's dark. You don't know what's around, like you know. Of, yeah, of course that's horror. That's um, it's like as above, so below that uh, horror movie where they're going through the French catacombs. Yeah. Or what's the one where I should remember the name of this? I've seen it several times. Uh, they're spelunking in a cave. Then there's like suddenly the descent. The descent. Descent. Yes. Yes. The yeah. descent. Yeah. I mean that's that's essentially a dungeon crawl. So it makes sense that these worlds would, you know, overlap in so many ways. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the there's a classic, de, you know, not, I shouldn't say debate as if these things, that, that's like what people say on podcasts, right? Well, there's a debate about X, it's not really a debate. Within, you know, <laughs> literary studies, like you can talk about, um, like genre can kind of mean two different things and people often try to disambiguate genre and setting. Mm. So you can have a horror story qua the genre of activity, the narrative structure within any setting. So it could be at Hogwarts, mm-hmm. but there's a serial killer. Well, that's horror but it looks like modern fantasy or whatever mm-hmm. alt alt earth fantasy. Um, and then, you know, similarly you could have a weirdly like traditional horrific setting and then 
there isn't a slasher, there isn't really horror. And I think actually classic D&D, weirdly enough, despite its pulp roots and emphasis on violence, it's not very horrific. Like, if you look back at Dragonlance or Dark Sun, it's a lot of, like, it's, I don't know, it's weirdly always epic imagery, but then the things I remember from actually trying to play the written TSR material from the 90s was, like, I'm just fighting goblins. Why do they hate goblins so much? Yeah, you know, it's like I'm fighting orcs. It's like it's boring. It had no real connection to like, you know, Ravenloft was was the closest, obviously, to horror. But but even then, it was a lot of like a ghost jumps out at you, fight it. And it felt like an action movie with ghosts. Do you know what I yeah. mean? As opposed to like, yeah, it was in a horror Man. setting, but whatever. It wasn't horrific. Yeah. You know? I run Curse of Strahd. It's sort of my filler game for when my main campaign isn't happening because my main campaign is seven players. Curse of Strahd is just four. Whoa. And um uh, like, in the beginning, I managed to get a horror vibe going for Curse of Strahd for a while, but you can only sustain that for so long while the characters get exponentially powerful, you know? like Right. Uh, the, one, one of my players can cast Sickening Radiance. Well, there, there goes the horror. But in the beginning, the everybody has heard of the of the TPK mill in, in Curse of Strahd. Uh, I managed to make my players really antsy and nervous in, in, in that very beginning. It helps that I like I like to do voices and monster noises myself and and really dwell on the descriptions and put music on and such. I, I do. I'm very good at the hags. I, I should probably do hags a little less. Um, but Ravenloft really only sustains the horror up to a point, and then your players are just punching everything in the face. Like, you are in the crypts of Castle Ravenloft, and then the player goes, I become a giant crab, and you're like, fuck! <laughs> well, this gets at the, the thing, also, Lovecraft in his letters was always saying, is like, when you know something, it's inherently not scary, mm-hmm. in a way. And so it's the unknowable, It's and it's trying to balance that with not nonsense, and not fantasy in the ch- child literature sense, but like, fantasy for adults, where like, there's something out there you don't know that's gonna kill you. And that really applies to cosmic horror where it's like a science fictional thing that we just have no idea exists or we don't know how to deal with it. But I also think even with slashers, if you think about it, it's just like a lack of knowledge about like, why is the serial killer killing me? Or like who is, you know, under the mask or why won't Um, they die when I stab them back? You know? Right. Right. And as soon as you know the rules and it's a little more realistic, it's like, okay, like in real life, the rules is like wife tries to like, you know, frankly, I, you know, I, I guess call the cops, right? Like, what would you do if there was like a serial killer hunting you down and you, but you know, they're, they're, they have to kind of construct. That's why there's always no agency. phone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No phone, no cell service. Yeah. 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 yeah I guess you do have uh, to be I, in a microcosm I, of isolation for, mm, for that to yes. work. Uh, I'm still waiting on like horror about things that are basically haunting the fucking wires or internet hauntings. Like, Whatever the hell Serial Experiments Lane was doing, but make that make me shit my pants. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, that's what I'm waiting for. Uh, I like the idea of undeath on the internet. I just have to see it executed or take the time to write the, the goddamn screenplay myself because it's in my brain a lot. I feel like yeah, it, you should... we, we've started to kind of tread into that a little. There's a, you know, not to be too hackneyed, but there is a Black Mirror episode that kind of explores a little yeah. bit of that, where it's basically like a cloud service AI that simulates a guy after he dies, things like that. But it's, right not, it's not very scary. Won't hurt. Yeah, it was right. it was sad, but it wasn't horror necessarily. Yeah, exactly. It was psychological drama, more like the Tchaikovsky novel I posted. And mm-hmm. and that's actually similar to like there's a I think it's an Amazon show that's I don't think it's very good, but called Uploads, which is the same thing where it's a horrific idea, but they treat it as a rom com. Mm. 
So it's like mm-hmm. it's you know all about all these themes about your your digital exist afterlife, but um, it's about characters falling in love despite the barrier of one of them is like a simulation of a dead guy or whatever. That but, is yeah. terrifying, but I'm sure it's executed it's terribly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow! Like there are some things that there there's people trying to make that in the real world. There there's this case of a, a Russian dude who died and his friend fed. All the communicate, all the online communications that this guy had that she could possibly get her hands on, all his tweets, system posts, conversations with her, conversations with his mom, everything she could get to make the bot as sort of a, a tribute, a memorial, you know. Uh, there's like, I'm waiting on a good deep fake horror. Mm. Mm. And it can't be about porn because that's low hanging fruit. Right. Um, yeah, it's got to be more creative. Um, yeah. Well, Leo, we're coming up on an hour. I just want to make sure we kind of get to all the... I mean, I know you've done a lot of, of cool work. Um, do you want to say anything about your other other published material? Anything that you want people to, to check out? Uh, well, I mentioned Beute Kunst before. That's, uh, that's one I'm very proud of. Um, it's, a, it's a heist game. Also, low crunch. 2d6s, modifiers with, like, very... With very easy to implement powers, character creation is also like, if you don't factor in coming up with a personality, you can do that in five minutes. And, but what's cool about it is that it's about anti-colonial art heisting. Um, you guys, have you guys seen the, the Jacob Geller Museum Theft video? I don't think I've seen no. that, no. It's one of the in my opinion, best videos on YouTube. It's a series of stories about Museum theft told by, you know, the the big boy video game essayist on YouTube. But he went, but sometimes he branches off and he talks about non-video game topics. And the museum theft video is amazing. And he gets to the anti-colonial part of, you know, a lot of that stuff was stolen at gunpoint. You can't really say it in any other way. Like, and from places sometimes you don't expect, like, People forget that Greece was smashed under colonial overlord boots for a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the Ottomans gave the the marbles to the British. That's fucked. Give those back, please. Yeah. And obviously a bunch of scrappy underdogs doing some direct action are not going to fix the problem. But cathartic transgression in a controlled environment is fun. And sometimes that's a better way to be a hero than pull a Batman and go smash some junkie in the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's cool. And it also, it's, it's like the right level type narrative structure talking about, um, you know, one big heist is a good episode. If you wanted to play it again, you could link them. There's tension. You could get caught. You could fail. And it has more yeah. narrative oomph behind it than like direct action qua pouring soup on a painting that's protected by Lexan. So it doesn't really matter. You just get arrested. Not, not a, like, nothing against those people as much as like it it wouldn't be fun to role play that right in the, right. In, in this cons- yeah. you know in, in the way that i'm talking about um but it's, it is fun to play like oceans 11 and i think making it about decolonial politics is you know chef's kiss brilliant so it's another good you can, short game to check out and you can pack more stuff into that like uh in terms of npc suggestions for instance you can do some things that you don't usually do like encounters you might have it's not necessarily you know uh, a two meter tall guard rippling with muscles and stuff it's a uh, 
a sleepless, overworked grad student who's like, all right, you can take the thing you came to take, but also disappear with the thing I'm studying because then I get a deadline extension. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, well, it's like or, an actual you know, docent in a museum who is just like, yeah, yeah. usually just a person. Where it's like, yeah, I could, yeah, I could probably steam, I could probably steamroll you if I was an actual art thief. <laughs> I'd probably get past this. Yeah, um, and like a heist also has sort of a structure. You you case the joint yeah. together until you go in, you get out, and then you can add little bits to the before and the after. You can have a you can have a, a tense handoff and a double crossing, or before that you can have a meeting with a shadowy facilitator. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe your character isn't there for their anti-colonial reasons, but they are, but the anti-colonial thing is a detour. They, they are getting access to the museum to help somebody else do some other thing. You can do a whole bunch of stuff. Right. It's, it's an important angle. I encourage people to look into the topic because it's infuriating. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and you don't often think about it, like being Brazilian, being from a country that to this day suffers from, you know, echoes of colonial fuckery and, Echoes of the U.S.-backed dictatorship and stuff. I went to the Louvre in, in Paris, and I was like, "Cool, mummies, awesome, and all this Assyrian shit." And, and then later, oh, oh no! Like the mummies that are here are the mummies the, the elites didn't snort mm -hmm. or or eat as medicine and, yeah. and stuff. And yeah, that snorting. I, snorting I, it didn't mummy occur dust. to me. That's real. That's real history. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It often uh, it can often be overlooked very easily how artifacts get from one place to where they're currently housed and the actual political history that's behind that. So I mean, yeah, I think it's I think it's fantastic that there would be a game that would point people to think in that direction or invite people to think about the politics of of museums and how you can kind of undermine them. Yeah. Yeah, and even like there's a couple of science podcasts recently that highlighted that Brazil is like a hotbed of research in paleontology and paleontology on dinosaurs, and then a lot of the actual fossils are in Germany for some reason. They're just like straight up, they're stolen yes. in the sense they're bought. They're quote unquote bought legally, but they're illegally sold. So it's like the person that you use, like, well, I bought it legally. I didn't do a bad, but I didn't know that the person selling it to me just you know stole it from a scientist basically or you know took it out of the ground while scientists were trying to carefully whatever but it's it was amazing to hear like yeah just how strong paleontology is and it was like no we have all the institutions like there's no need to move these things mm -hmm. like they these are million year old samples that like we have a state now that supports this research let's just do it and it, it's such a it's such a simple dumb you know, thing like yeah so don't steal uh, it take it somewhere else <laughs> I have a thing to send you guys. I can't send stuff to the to the Twitch chat, but um, it just popped in my mind. I sent it to the private chat so you can share with everyone. Sure. Um, it's about Nicolas Cage returning a stolen Mongolian dinosaur school he bought at a gallery. That is uh, fantastic. I'll post this in our... Oh, okay, you got it. <laughs> that sounds like a game that you or we should be working yeah. right now. Somebody should make uh, that game. One of my, my players in the in one of the Boitakunst playtests was basically playing Nicolas Cage, but and their quest was to stole uh, a giant prehistoric penis bone of a walrus. It's pretty good. The well, and then like oh, and then I get all these bleeding hearts to join me for their anti-colonial reasons. But he was the money. It's pretty good. 
Uh, I mean, Nicolas Cage, the true national treasure. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much one of the few remaining good things about the United States. But Uh, sorry, what was that, Leo? You guys watch Pig? Yeah, yeah. Oh yes. Oh, I love it. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Nicolas Cage, he's got, he's got some good stuff under his, uh, under his resume in the last, I want to say five years or so. I mean, pig was great. Um, I, I know that Mandy is very controversial, but it's a, it's a wild ride. Oh, Mandy's fantastic. Yeah. Mandy's his best work. I think along, <laughs> along with pig, it's but... a wild ride. Um, I cannot believe he, yeah, great. And pre was going to charge him. This is such an interesting story. Imagine that trial. If he had gone to trial to defend his skull, <laughs> Oh man, now I want to write a legal RPG. It's a legal thriller, drama, courtroom, you know, John Grisham vibe, but it's about famous people trying to steal artifacts and getting caught. Ooh, um, yeah. Something like that. I like that. Anyway, we'll, we'll workshop it. Um, <laughs> there, there was Leo. Thing. Hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had another Porticles related thing. Let's see if I can fish it out of my brain, pulls to the, the cage event. <laughs> I was just going to uh, say we yeah. should have you back on. We we want to play. I know we're going to play Death Sentence um, as an official Friends of Stillfleet thing. We should also play uh, Boitekunst, um, which I think would be fun. And I, I love a heist. We have a heist mini venture coming out for Stillfleet that is uh, by Stephen Aubrey and has new heist rules about the sort of archetypal Ooh. roles you play in a heist, separate Ooh. from class, right? So, like, what are you there to do? Very cool. Um, That's cool. Which we love. We love coming up with. Epiphenomenal uh, modules, you know, things you can just stick on a game. But yeah, I'd be happy to run some particles. And I remembered what I was going to say. You mentioned Brazil being a, a hotbed of paleontology. Well, we have this problem here, which is that places where scientific findings are stored keep fucking going up in flames. Mm. I, w- I wish it was a joke. You guys are probably familiar with the one big famous museum fire yeah. in Rio a couple years ago. But that's not an isolated event, and there's this pattern of underfunding that left a lot of things with um, outdated, faulty wiring. Mm. And because those places keep some really dry stuff, it can go mm. disastrously. It happened a couple times. I would hope that the big, you know, internationally reported Rio event prevented some stuff. Um, but like we had forests. We had research stations in, in forested regions going up in flames. We had other museums that burned down. And it's not just paleontology. Like we, there, is, there are some old... I think we lost some recordings, like um, wax recordings of indigenous languages that are no longer spoken. Oh that just God. melted. So, like... I like to beat on the drum of fun science more. Holy shit here in Brazil. Yeah. Get, get things adequately housed and so on. When I was going to university, I thought I was going to be a, a science journalist. It was the thing I was really focused on. So I spent a lot of time talking to people like who, who are in the trenches doing research, teaching, working at museums and so on. And it was bad. It got worse with Bolsonaro, I hope it's recovering now. But like approving additional funds, even for basic infrastructure maintenance stuff, is tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's definitely about funding, but there's also that in the long durée, this is about like the ability of humans to capture moments in time in a in a entropic universe and on a planet where they've sort of set a bunch of processes spinning 
that militate against stability, you know, so like it'll only get worse basically everywhere as governments are forced to put more money into climate adaptation and basic research about climate adaptation, for example, and pull like arts and humanities funding. So it's interesting to think about like what preservation means, especially as every year now we generate more data than all of human history combined up until that year due to the internet and AI. So it's like how much of that needs to get preserved and how much of it is like basically just random or, you know, it's, it's all up to some company. And if that company ever, you know, let's say, I don't know, Amazon web services goes under how many like things just disappear that we've like entrusted. Like I've entrusted everything to Google. So please, I hope Google doesn't disappear because all of my stuff is like in one you know place. Um, no, there's anyway, a big yeah. thing about missing video game history because of that, yeah. because video sure. games are yeah. digital media. So there's, there's a push now to, to catalog and preserve stuff, but a lot has already been lost. Yeah, yeah. a lot's been lost. Well, there... isn't it like only 20% of games that have been published are even playable, something like that? I'm probably getting the number really? wrong. Uh, you might know better yeah, than me. It's a low freaking number. Yeah, it's it's uh, shockingly low. Crew, uh, That's why I we make books, baby. <laughs> yeah, but like straight up, make physical copies of things, keep them in places that are not the purview of Google and Amazon. Uh, the sort of pop archival initiatives is, is really, really important at this point. Mm-hmm. Especially for media that was born digital. Like music too. There's a lot of music out there who doesn't exist as physical stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, on that on that note, so we have some... So first of all, uh, decolonize art and science. Second of all, preserve your stuff physically and maybe not don't entrust it to just two giant or three giant companies. <laughs> throw Apple in there. Um, and yeah, check out Leo Andrade's work um, on Itch, right? You, you, I, I posted a link to Death Sentence, um, but is that the best place to find you? Uh, you can you can send people to my website uh, in oh, my right. tabletop. My tabletop RPG portfolio is pretty up to date, except for that sentence that I have to dive in and add. Uh, and then I don't know if anybody is making an indie video game and needs a writer. Check out the the portfolio. I have playable pieces. Sweet. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah, definitely hire Leo uh, for various things, um, and I will uh, be sad but happy also if you get a full-time job and can't work with us on Stillfleet and other grit system games, and maybe, who knows, Don's Macabre. Yeah. Uh, but until then, you know, and we can always, you know, hang out and, and play games. Uh, and thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else either y'all want to cover that we haven't gotten to? Just want to be mindful of, you know, we're at, we're at an hour for this app, yeah. so... Uh, I thought it was going to take two hours, but I'm pretty free. But I don't have anything that I really need to add. I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to stop now. Thank you for inviting me. This is cool. Uh, so it's nice to show up and talk to people about the things I'm making. Uh, nice to meet you, Chris. Yeah, good to meet you too, Leo. Thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, yeah, that's it for me. All right. Well, I guess that's it for us as well. Um, yeah, and hey to Luna Johns and ATL Zach in the chat. What's up? Um, What's up? And yeah, I hope. Uh, yeah, I mean, we could we could do this again, Leo. That was going to be my pitch. You well, let's play Boyd Kunst. Um, let's play Death Sentence, and it can be part of the official Why We Roll. Yeah, whatever we are podcast, podcast uh, stream, stream stuff. <laughs> yeah, Multi- streamcast, multimedia, We're innovating multimedia artifact uh, <laughs> generator. Uh, and we'll take your games that are video games and then we will carve them in stone tablets yeah. so that future generations can put them back yeah. into computers. Just chuck them into space for the aliens. Eventually, <laughs> they will decipher Portuguese through my terrible robot who speaks in JoJo references. So,
Thanks for listening to Why We Roll. Our theme music is by the brilliant Sam Tyndall and Arcline. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitch and what used to be Twitter at Why We Roll and on Instagram at whyweroll.pod. You can find out more about Dance Macabre at timespaceplace.itch.io slash dance dash macabre. You can find out more about Stillfleet at stillfleet.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>